Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am super excited about our interview today with Chris Dreyer. So Chris is the founder of Rankings.io. I hope I did that right. Shoot. but <laughs> And he's an expert on SEO. I'm super excited to talk to him about everything that's changing in this crazy world. And he also has a really interesting perspective on niching, which is one of our favorite topics and uh, super, super deep in the personal injury space and legal in general. So um, thanks for coming on the show. Chris, really appreciate it. Jan, thanks so much for having me. Awesome. So let's go ahead and get started with the old backstory. So um, today uh, I'm looking at this beautiful logo behind. We talked a little bit on the on the pre-chat, but super embedded in the personal injury stuff, running masterminds, running podcasts and that kind of thing. What's the road that got you here? I don't know how deep down the rabbit hole you want me to go, but I will, I'll give you an accelerated version we can dip in if yeah. you want to dig Perfect. into it. I went to college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I ended up with a history education degree because I thought I was going to coach college basketball. And I thought, well, I like history. I'll be a teacher and then I'll kind of go down that that route. My first job was a detention room supervisor because it was on the teacher's track and I was a JV basketball coach. And I typed in how to make money online in the detention room and I found this course. And by the end of my second year teaching, I was making about four times the amount through affiliate marketing that I was teaching. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to pursue this. So I'm, I moved to Florida, got a mentor, kind of went all in. And around 2012, that first Penguin algorithm hit and just nuked all my sites because it wasn't set up for quality. They were set up for quantity. And I got a job at an agency. I rose to be their top guy. And then I decided, it's a classic, I, I decided that uh, it was time for me to start my own agency. And I thought I could do better than, than what they were doing from an SEO perspective, from a digital marketing perspective. And that's how I started it. There's some funny stories in between. And uh, I'll let you kind of go where you, where you want. But uh, that's kind of the accelerated version. Okay, that's awesome. And um, yeah, it's kind of funny. I remember the SEO, I think I started looking into it around like a little before that. I think I was, I think I had my first digital marketing job in 2009 or 2010. And I remember when Penguin was like, I mean, I know people who lost their whole shirts on that stuff too. It just kind of goes to the the changing tides of SEO and why it is kind of impossible to be into this stuff and even less than part-time, right? The SEO is constantly changing. The, the biggest thing is the shift that's occurred. In the past, Google didn't have all the information covered. You could write a 500-word article on a topic that wasn't covered, and you could rank. Surprise, no one else had written an article on that topic. Fast forward for today, 2023, the mass majority of content and subject matter for evergreen types of topics been covered by someone. So now it's kind of this, how do I write the best piece of content to answer consumer intent and to stand out amongst all the saturation? And that's what the game is now. It's, it's more about quality. The other thing too is from a, a money perspective, Google has to have the ability to crawl the web and it costs a lot of money. So that's why they're telling you with the Google helpful content to purge content for the first time ever to do to really focus on quality to not use spun articles to do all these things because it takes a lot of resources for them to crawl the web because even in 2016, there were 6 trillion web pages. I don't have a clue how many there are now, but it's an astronomical number. And just the amount of money it takes to crawl the web is, is astronomical. It, it's just huge. 
Yeah. And I'll say this too. It's kind of funny. I feel like you and I are probably two of the only guys in the marketing space that aren't saying AI is going to change everything for your business right now. But like, if we're kind of going with that hypothesis, that quality is the differentiator. I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but what are your thoughts on this, uh, you know, chat GPT generated content for the history of future of SEO? I try to ask myself this and I ask our team this, like, are we farming without tractors? Are we row cropping by hand? I think it's a tool that we shouldn't ignore. I mean, the, the taxis and now you got Uber and technology changes, right? It has the ability to enhance our productivity, whether it's an outline, whether it's, it's ideation, general research that I would have to do. I think there's a lot of uses for it. We got to be careful because the legalese, there's a lot of issues with it. A lot of the times that we've tested it, we've seen, and it's just incorrect. And you also run into issues with ownership. And we all know what happened to Napster. You know, several bands came in. Metallica was like the, the main one, sued them into oblivion. And, but then came Spotify and Pandora. They found the workaround. So what's going to happen with ChatGPT in terms of ownership rights? And we don't know, but I think it's something to constantly test because I could, it can enhance productivity. Uh, we do know that Google in the past took a stance that all AI-generated content was bad, but then they updated their user guidelines recently, which is why, you know, again, what you're saying you constantly got to stay on top of this. Now they're saying, no, it's okay. It's okay to use AI generating content as long as it's good. Yeah. And I think that's the crux here too, because it's like, and again, I think like shame on the industry that we're participating in as marketers, because it's like, you always want to be wary about the person who's got the magic money button. And again, if the magic money button exists and everyone presses it, then, you know, what's your differentiator for being the guy who founded 10 days earlier? Like, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think we're probably on the same page in, in terms of like augmenting stuff. Yeah, sorry for the quick diversion. But, you know, basically, as far as quality being the thing that people want to shoot for in content, what are the things that you'd say that people are getting wrong in like 2023? Like, what are the sacred cows that people have to let go of uh, or you know, need to kill? Jeez, so much. Let me think about this. The first, I'll kind of go down the line. And if you want me to stay on the SEO side or just in general, I can go that direction too. From the SEO standpoint, a lot of times attorneys will create new content because a topic's already been covered. Say you're a criminal defense attorney, you already have a DUI lawyer page. Let me, you know, wave my hands. It's it's done. I'm going to move on to this obscure phrase that only gets searched two times a month versus your main transactional head term. These main terms, you're in the your money, your life space, similar to the medical professions and finance. They have to be updated every year, every single year. If you're sick and you go and Google your symptoms, you don't want to see a 2016. You want to see a 2023. That's what we're talking about here. So that's one of the things that a lot of times attorneys overlook is the amount of updates and refreshing and enhancing their core pages that need to do as opposed to just new content. Staying on the content front, the other thing that you want to do is delete content that's no longer current events, that's not evergreen. If you still have a Paul Walker auto accident case uh, blog on your site, I would no one's typing that in, right? It creates a bandwidth issue. It dilutes your equity to your site. You need to delete those. Do a permanent 301 redirect. There are situations like that. On-site SEO, look, there's nothing that I'm going to cover. Optimize your site. Make sure it's easy to navigate. Make sure it loads quickly. All these types of things. Make sure you have a good menu. The big one on local that we hear, and it impacts Google local service ads, it impacts a lot of things in CRO is reviews. The problem with reviews is, the for, is one of the things that people overlook is the type of firm you are. If you're a pre-lit firm that does volume, that has soft tissue cases and your, your case selection criteria is very low, you're going to have a lot of cases and you have the ability to get a lot of reviews. If you're a litigating firm and your case selection criteria is high and you only do, you only look for a case or two a month, 
you're not going to have the opportunity to get very many reviews. So you need to take that in consideration when you're looking for channels to choose to, to originate cases. And a litigating firm, it may not be the traditional B2C approach where you're doing TV and radio and things like that. You may be concentrating more on authority and peer-to-peer uh, -peer referrals and speaking on a stage and things like that might carry a lot more weight. So you know, that that's a mouthful. The other big one is link building. Link building cannot be ignored. Again, there's too many landing pages. You need to have these endorsements to your website. So you have to take a proactive approach. You can't, it, this isn't field of dreams where you're creating a great piece of content. And you know, if you build it, they will come. You, you have to proactively outreach and tell people about this asset. So those are some of the things going wrong in terms of the SEO side. And we could just talk about the industry as a whole if you want, but that, that's what I'm seeing it, putting my SEO hat on. Yeah. And I was super curious about the SEO stuff. It's like, it's kind of interesting. Like we we're talking a little bit on the pre-chat, like how this stuff evolves. So again, this kind of seems like the first time I've seen like the economy of content really come up. It seems like, you know, before I know people who built entire empires out of just like taking the legal spin on whatever news story of the week was. But again, it's like, yeah, you're going to get crazy traffic for a month or two. And then it's just, you know, sucking wind for like the rest of the, the different mm -hmm. things too. And it's kind of interesting, like the inside scoop on why Google might want to do that. And just like, there's, there's such an interesting, weird gray area. And I, we don't do a ton on, on the AdWords side these days anymore, but like, you we were starting to see it back when we were doing it, just like, there's this weird gray area of stuff that's not necessarily better for the consumer. It's not necessarily better for the advertiser, but it's better for Google. And you got to pay attention to those factors sometimes because they do make it easy for you. So easy. Look at Google ads. They just released performance max bidding. I don't know if you guys guys remember, but not too long ago, they had AdWords Express. This is like AdWords Re Express 2.0. They just renamed it. And there's this taboo thing where you bid on competitors' names, right? Well, of course, if you trademark a competitor's name, you can't bid on it. You can't use it in their copy. But if you do performance max, I can assure you that you're bidding on your competitors' names, whether you're putting in your competitor's name or not. And so there's all kinds of issues there. And you go can go down the negative keyword, you know, the negative keyword route. And I'm kind of getting granular here, but they're there to take the bag. They're there to take the money. So that performance max is to spend your money as wildly as they can and hope that, to get conversion so you'll continue to do it. Yeah, it's I mean, it's interesting. I feel like the the do no evil uh, credo for Google is probably a little bit more true like five years ago, but hey, whatever. It's a situation we got to deal with. So another question I had, and this is kind of a trend that I've seen, and I'm curious to see what your take on it is. I feel like, you know, if we're talking about three or five years ago, there seemed to be like a big convergence of, I would say like, you know, what I'd consider like old school SEO with like the link building and the on-page stuff merged with like content and even like a PR type of approach for the people who are doing the more white hat link building. These days, the things that I kind of see, and it's tough to see where the borders are. I see some people who say that they're doing SEO and it's almost exclusively Google My Business listings. Other people are sticking mm. to the traditional on-page stuff. How do you approach it and, and where do you think firms should focus by and large? I'm so glad you asked this question because I think that there are a lot of charlatans that are advertising things incorrectly. The agencies that just focus on local SEO, if you look at how to improve your local SEO, it's by relevance, distance, and prominence. Relevance is keyword use not only from your content, but also from the reviews and the words and phrases a consumer uses. Distance has to deal with physical proximity, but then prominence is links, articles, directories, review count, and score. 
a lot of times these, hey, organic SEO doesn't work. We're just going to do local SEO. Well, you have to do the same things that you do for organic SEO to rank in the map pack. You have to get links. You have to create content. The only different factor is the reviews, but that's only one component of local. So it's really hard to segment these different channels. Um, and I, I think it's it's definitely misleading. I think a lot of times the agencies that just sell local SEO, they're leaning heavily on the brand of the firm itself to get results. If, if that firm is doing well with their traditional advertising, they have a greater opportunity to rank because of the amount of reviews and just natural brand exposure and links that they're getting. It's super funny. Like I remember this analog. Um, I got a, a good friend of mine ends up, uh, they, they do media for an e a huge e-commerce brand. And uh, they thought that their search department was doing super well, but it was all directed branded keywords, right? So right. It was like, or I might not quite be there. I think uh, you know, podcasts might have been doing more of a lift than you might realize. But um, no, that's super interesting. And yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like I think a lot of this stuff too, I kind of have a, a little bit of a chip on my shoulder for whenever, like I love to see the fundamentals carrying through eras to be honest. And maybe that's just because I feel like an internet old head these days, but like, it's kind of good to see when, when nothing changes in the end, because mm -hmm. it's like, you know, how much different could it really be? So I want to pivot a little bit too. So to kind of get a little more granular on you know, your experience with personal injury specifically, and also this, uh, the stuff that you've been getting into as far as niching. Mm -hmm. First of all, before we get any deeper in this, do you prefer the term niching or do you like to pronounce it niching? I say niching just because you hear riches are in the niches, right? For rhyming, but but both work. Yeah, I'm I'm good with both. <laughs> okay, because I always have that question when I say it out loud. I, I've probably said it like both ways on this podcast before, but it's <laughs> a bit informal poll. But um, yeah, let's talk about personal injury. So one of the things that we used to see as kind of a challenge back when we were doing more of the personal injury stuff on the AdWords side was like, sometimes we have these situations where let's say that you were trying to rank for car accident lawyer and that'd be awesome. But maybe you're really interested only in car accident lawyer, California, or maybe you're really only interested in car accident lawyer, Sacramento or whatever. How do you think about the keywords that people should target and how to deal with potentially casting a wider net? Or is that not something people have to worry about anymore these days? Such an interesting question. Putting, flipping it back, I constantly get asked for exclusivity, right? Because personal injury attorneys and attorneys in general are conditioned to ask for exclusivity due to their past history and experiences with traditional media and radio and TV. Well, radio and TV already own distribution. They can control the distribution of that exclusive market. When it comes to Google, if you write a car accident lawyer page and you don't designate a geo, Google has the ability to determine where the consumer's proximity is. So you could actually rank in a number of locations. So there's an issue right now. You can incorporate city keywords to help designate a market area. You can't even include state keywords right now. I just earlier today, I was on with the client and we had an Illinois car accident lawyer page. This firm's in Texas. So I type it in. Sure enough. They're number three, right? Should they really be ranking in Illinois? They don't have a physical address, but they've they had good site authority and Google determined to rank them there. So that it just causes all kinds of issues, the exclusivity conversation, because Google, they understand proximity based upon IP addresses. That's super interesting. And just curious on that story specifically, did somebody write an Illinois personal injury attorney page for that client or were they just showing up for a personal injury page they wrote? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was that was a page written. They may have had a city like a satellite office or another office and created the Illinois page first to fall under that umbrella that in terms of a taxonomy and surprise, they're ranking third. No kidding. That's so crazy. Well, I feel like there's also some interesting opportunities with like getting co-counsel from stuff like that. Have any of your clients ever explored doing that? kind of an angle? Oh, yeah. That's very common. 
in the pre-lit space is because so they can classify their cases on a one to five and you know they start getting these fives they may they may send out some of those to co-counsel because they're just going to get more value than if they settle it uh and don't go to court now it can impact their cash flow and all those different circumstances but they'll there are some that definitely cherry pick and that that's not to mention those that are you know out of jurisdiction that they're going to refer out anyways yeah and that's kind of interesting too because that backs into like one of the things i used to have to talk about all the time with um, personal injury clients who are doing the adword stuff i feel like there's kind of like this valley of death when it comes to the average case size that people are willing to accept. So it's like you've got those super primo hundred, you know, six figure, seven figure cases, or I'm kicking it, I'm throwing it back on the water. And then there's the guys that are taking the prelits up. But it was really interesting that it was like, I noticed that you have guys that are like brand newbies that will take anything. Then you have monsters that will take anything. And it's those guys in the middle that have enough staff where they can't really take less than that because they don't have enough staff where they can take the little things, but they don't have like abundance of staff where they can just, you know, hammer everything through. But it's just kind of tough because it's like those guys, I think are in the toughest place to grow practices because it's like, there's sort of this like marketing cul-de-sac. I think they find themselves in where their standards are, where it's kind of tough to get anything from digital. Like any thoughts on that? So many thoughts. The pre-lit firms often have to do which take those lower uh, case selection criteria typically have to staff themselves with more paraprofessionals and, and lower cost staff. It's, it lends itself to more productization uh, and certain case types that you're working through the, the assembly line, so to speak, versus litigating. Litigating may have less number of staff, but their average fee to each individual employee is much, much higher. And it makes sense. And a lot of times, typically, those firms are tied into a revenue share that get profit share. Because if you're an expert litigator, you're going to go out on your own. You're going to be able to get case referrals. So they have to participate in the upside in the performance. So those are the differences. You also typically, those litigating firms, they cost so much for these expert witnesses and to work up a case. And, and it's it is such an, a hit on your cash flow that they're just, they're taking, you know, a million dollar minimum types of uh, value cases. Yeah, there's this dead zone. If you don't know who you are, if you don't know that you're a pre-lit or a litigating firm and you're in this murky middle, you're probably having problems. There's a reason why you shift to one orientation or the other. And I'm actually kind of reminded from this. Have you ever read the book Lawyer Forward by Mike Whalen? I haven't. So mm-hmm. we ended up having him on the podcast a couple of years ago. Really, really fascinating guy. But, um, you know, he talked about kind of the future of law and like there's fundamentally two positions. It's like you can either be the expert. And I think that kind of consolidates towards the super high. I mean, we had another I'm trying to think of her name. I mean, I'm just uh, this is just the the, the tour of memories, like memory lane right now. We had a um, fantastic MedMal uh, PI practice, K Van Way out of Texas, and she didn't spend a dime on marketing, but you know, she just mm-hmm. tried monster cases that were probably referred to her by people who were like, damn, Kay's going to get a better job than we will on this. And our co-counsel is going to be bigger than we could get for ourselves or the client. So you have that like that expert poll, and then you have the you know, the rainmaking poll where you're just getting all the different cases in there too. And then you're kind of the ability to like route that and get those those things to different people is, is super helpful. But yeah, I always thought it was kind of interesting. We've seen uh, some firms or clients of ours or partners of ours that I think like the referral aspect of that is a really good hedge. Because like, you know, if you think about it, you get not even a crazy soft tissue case, five, 10, 15 grand. It's like, yeah, shoot, you know, you could refer that out and get couple thousand here, a couple thousand there. And like, when we're really talking about the cost of getting these stuff down, it's not cheap, but it's not free, but you can easily fund that and then use that to cherry pick the cases that you actually want, which I always thought was like a, a neat strategy. But another thing that I want to get into is how to get the volume and the quality 
with niching. So how do you think about that? And like, where does that kind of change PI firm strategies when they're trying to get after that stuff? See, I don't think, I don't know in the PI space particular that you get the volume and the quality through niching. Typically, it's going to be more just the quality and less volume. Niching in the PI space, particularly, and this could apply to even criminal defense, is like uh, or family law, you know, high high net worth divorce or you know high end DUIs, so to speak. There's all different aspects of this. It's when you niche, you turn your focus into something. Malcolm Gladwell says you have to put ten thousand hours into something to become an expert. When you eliminate distractions, you actually become an expert. You understand how to get more value out of something and. And you stand out, you're perceived as an expert. If you go in to the doctor, right, and you got this generalist and you, you need brain surgery, they're going to send you to a brain surgeon. But guess what? Every brain surgeon had their first brain surgery, right? But perception-wise, they're perceived to be an expert versus the other individual. So there's this perception. It allows you to just extend your value. Um, the marketing changes. That's where a lot of times the people going on the speaker circuit all have these deep level of expertise, whether it's in TBI or truck accidents or whatever. They've chosen that niche to go into versus the other individuals. Now, you could make a case and say personal injury is niching. I'm not going after all areas of law. It's not really... <laughs> I wouldn't really classify it as niching. You're really spreading your TAM. You're going after a large total addressable market. You're putting heavy dollars under the marketing because you have a much bigger audience to attract those cases. And you're going to maximize you know, those lower end cases. You're still going to generate revenue from them. So anyways, that's super long-winded. We can go a little deeper here. Well, yeah, 100%. And I'll say this too, just like to anyone who's thinking personal injury is the niche you're choosing a niche that you have to compete against John Morgan in. So like, I'd, I'd probably pick a different right. niche if it was me. <laughs> For people who are kind of like, you know, hoping to branch out too. Where do you think is like a good place to start? You know, I know some people will just have that like, you know, super impactful case that meant a lot to them or was a great financial success. But like, how do you recommend people uh, pick their shots, so to speak, on where to kind of focus in? And, and how do you evaluate whether that's going to be a fruitful area to, to zoom in on? Really good question. There's a lot of mentors and coaches that will say, hey, you got to pick a niche right at the beginning. I'm against that. I think you need to have these experiences with multiple areas of the law to then determine what you have a purpose for, a passion for, and where you can generate a profit. And you can do that by looking at data. You can look at it from your past experiences. There's this uh, book called Range by David, Abe, David Epstein, and it gives this ex example of Nadal. Nadal's parents put him in, uh, with famous tennis player Nadal, they put him in all kinds of sports, basketball, baseball, tennis, soccer, and he just happened to be phenomenal at tennis. And now he's this, you know, Hall of Fame, amazing tennis player. But imagine if his parents just put him in basketball or just in baseball. Would he be the standout that he is in tennis? We'll never know. Like, like maybe, but it's, it's very unlikely. So I feel that if you're an attorney and you don't know, you need to have these experiences work on different, a lot of different types of cases and determine then what you have a purpose, passion, and what can ultimately generate a profit. And it's that Venn diagram, right? Three circles, you all meet in the middle. That's where, where you have an opportunity. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. And I was going to say, like, there actually is a time and a place. And, and I actually do talk a lot of smack on the podcast about people who are generalists for too long. But there's absolutely a time to be a generalist and take things. I think, like, on the one hand, you can go wrong by being everything to all people, like, past a certain point. But at the same time, you can try to optimize too early. Like, it's kind of a shame when you see people that have, uh, that turn their noses up, like, you know, six months or a year, like, into their career. It's like, you really know that you need that? Like, what do you think? Yeah. 
I, there, there's so much. Here I am, I wrote the book, Niching Up. And when you look at things, even in my space, in the agency space, you got Boostability, you got WebFX, you got Neil Patel Digital, the, all those being nine-figure type agencies, right? They're all generalists. Abstract and St. Louis, they're generalists, right? $70 million agency. And then you, you look at our, again, my expertise is the PI space, so that's what I can speak to. Just what you said. You got John Morgan, you got Mike Morse, Shannara. I don't, yes, they pick PI as a niche, but is that really a niche when there's, you know, 90,000 PI firms? I don't know. It doesn't seem like a niche. I would think of a niche as like, oh, I only do motorcycle accidents or only do truck accidents or only do slip and falls. So it, there's something to be said about the opportunity. And I think it's the person that can originate the case. That's the real challenge. The real challenge is a lot of times niching can help you generate the case through a conversion or through advertising. And I'll say this too, like it's, it's, um, I mean, I ended up like way back on it. It was just like a huge crux of our advert strategy, like back in like 2015, which is like going specific on stuff. Like I, I tell the story in my book of, I had a friend who was looking to, uh, like they were just getting married to go to the United States as like, I have a lot of friends from Canada, but they ended up getting hit with a Stokes interview and they Googled it and they came up on a page that said Stokes interview lawyer. And like, literally that's like a day one paralegal thing to like prepare somebody for a Stokes interview at any immigration firm. But these guys had the page. So they came off as the experts. They got the phone call. They got the business. But yeah, I think like from a conversion perspective, it pulls super hard. And like, I know um, I don't like to reference this stuff too much often, but like, even if you don't want to spend a dime on marketing, if you want to go pure referral base, like it makes you so much more sticky in people's minds of just like, oh, shoot, I don't want to take this slip and fall. Oh, shoot, I forgot about Jeff, the slip and fall guy. <laughs> like it makes like such an easy thing too. And then even on the level too, like I recorded, a, we had a podcast not too long ago, just about like how to deliver good referrals. It's just like the chance that you can actually get that person to show up to the call. If you're like, look, I have the slip and fall guy. Like, what more do you want? Like, they're like, oh, cool. Well, I, you know, I, I think I'm going to be taken care of here. And, you know, that helps even with the sales stuff and pulling it through the client experience as well. And ultimately, you know, that gives everyone an easier job too. Yeah, because when you give a referral, it's your it's your reputation at risk. You want the individual to do a good job, and you would imagine the guy that's extreme focused on this one thing is probably a better fit than just the generalist that does a little bit of everything. Hundred percent. So, um, yeah, let's kind of talk about some stuff in the industry in general. Like, where do you see things going for personal injury in the next couple of years? I don't know how quickly it's going to happen, but there's definitely going to be consolidation. Consolidations occurred in everywhere. I mean, look at real estate, you got Remax, you look at, uh, you know, dental, you got all the dental holding companies, even, even in uh, the mortuary stuff, like the most of the funeral homes are owned by like large holding companies. This it's coming. It's, you know, Arizona set the groundwork for this. I think consolidations are coming and it, it's positioned as favorable for the consumer to lower costs on these commoditized services. So I think that's happening. I also just think that advertising in general is this attention arbitrage. It's like, where do consumers congregate? That's an opportunity to advertise. And if you look at everything as a channel, like SEOs, it's just Google. That's the channel, right? Google ads, it's the channel. And then you got TikTok and Facebook. And it's just where are consumers congregating, that's an opportunity to advertise. So right now, there's a shift from TV and cable over to streaming and OTT and Hulu and Netflix and Disney. That's kind of where attention shifting. People don't want to pay for cable. They want to be selective on their shows. So it's just, you, you got to be cognizant of where attention shifting. You don't want to be the guy advertising in the phone book when, it, when no one's using the phone book anymore. And just don't be too reliant upon one channel and because it's going to shift, it's going to change.
I really like that. And then as far as like the changes between those different things, what do you think are like the differences in terms of the playbooks that people need to have if they're going from something that's probably a lot higher intent with search to potentially one of these lower intent, like push slash interruption based marketing channels? I kind of segment it a little different. I segment and, and the intent's very important, but I, I kind of segment it in direct response versus branding. Direct response would be like short-term orientation and you can really measure uh, return on investment through data more easily through direct response versus branding. It's more long-term orientation and it's harder to measure. The attribution's murky, but you actually in the long haul can get lower case acquisition costs from branding that you could from most direct response because of because of the short-term orientation. It allows private equity and money and capital to be it becomes a numbers game much more easily uh, versus being ethereal and through the brand and, and memory and repetition. So I don't know if that answered your question, but that I think in the beginning, if you're looking for cases and you need money quickly, concentrate on direct response. And if you're looking, if you're going to play the long-term game, it's going to start shifting to where more money goes into brand. Okay. I really think that's an awesome play too, because it's, it's kind of interesting as well. Cause I think there's like a lot of situations like this in business where there's kind of like the, maybe not crazy outsized returns, but it's like, like steady in the in the short term and it's like yeah well look there's the reason why there's the outsized returns of the brand thing is that like not everyone's willing to light whatever 15 grand on fire for years at a time like for per, per month for years at a time to own the billboard and the radio stations and have the kids uh singing their jingle while they're playing hopscotch right right but I, it's also kind of an, and this is another thought i've been having too is just like as far as um i always kind of use this and, and it's interesting we ended up kind of building the business model around this because we're moving a little bit out of search. We went to honestly more of like a push-based practice area in estate planning where we're just like, you know, we, it's easier to find people who have the need than personal injury, which I would consider the most pure play of like solution aware. Like, you know, these guys, you're literally, sometimes you got a, a, a host, like a family member in the hospital bed, like you're not going to, hmm, like, I don't <laughs> like really, really do my due diligence here. But it's, I always was kind of skeptical of a lot of the people that are trying to do like a direct response play on the social channels. And like, I am aware of people that have gotten it to work, but like within the PI space too, like, I think there's certain things where I think there's still like a space and it is kind of in, in between. I'd say it's more of like the direct response style of things, but you're not going to get the person who got the catastrophic motor vehicle accident because they know who to call or they Googled it. Right. I think there's space for like the people and you know, a lot of these things are stuff that slips through the cracks. Like maybe somebody got uh, complications down the line. They have the bill they didn't think to fill it out and now they know it or you know they're in some weird thing where it's you know maybe it's workers comp related or they think they don't have a case but they really do and it's like the awareness or you know mass tort kind of stuff too where it's an existing condition and you do have to, like the awareness is the sale but um it's kind of tough too because it's just like that's usually not what like a lot of people are like looking for you know thousand percent there's a book called snow leopard and i'm gonna not do this book justice but it talks about just that uh about if you're creating content on like a social media network and you create just generalized humor or motivational stuff it reaffirms beliefs and it's easy to consume there's not a lot of brain power that goes into it and you can appeal to a very broad audience as opposed to if you're creating your own category, if you're being too niche, it only appeals to a small segment. So it's harder to gain a following for distribution. So there needs to be a balance. And a lot of times it doesn't matter whether it's criminal defense or bankruptcy or PI. If you're just talking about you as a lawyer and what to do in these cases, you're just appealing to a very small segment as opposed to splashing in. The, oh, I have a dog. 
and you like dogs too, and you're, you're appealing to humanity and just a larger TAM. So that's where a lot of times people go wrong or poorly in their content strategies. I think you just explained why my TikTok, uh, I stopped publishing after 15 videos. So that's, that's super helpful as well. But yeah, no, it's interesting. And like, I, I think, uh, you know, totally agree with like, I don't think search is going anywhere. People aren't going to stop. And again, like, you know, it'll be my second shot. I take at the chat GPT guys over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. I don't think search right. is going anywhere, bro. But like, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's always good to hedge, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. And Google's the biggest repository of information. It's the biggest library. So it's going to have a place, especially for subject, uh, subjective, you know, who's the best car accident where you have to have options, right? It's not an individual being told, right? It's so there's that, but yeah, it's, it's constantly going to change. And also they have so much capital, who knows what they're going to do. You know, I know they brought out Bard, but they have a ton of capital. They're going to bring out something, I imagine. And it's the same thing, too. Just like you kind of have to think like an investor sometimes, like as a marketer. The closest thing I can remember this is when they had all like the pixel drama with the iOS 14 update. And they're just like, you mm-hmm. know, people were talking about the sky falling. I'm just like, look, these guys have hundreds of billions of dollars. They've been hiring the best engineers out of Stanford and MIT for the last 10 years. They're going to figure it out. <laughs> it's just right. like don't bet against like the people I did. Like they're that well capitalized for a reason. But um mm-hmm. this has been an awesome conversation, man. And I just wanna um as far as uh just like people who've been enjoying this, like what's the best way to get in your world? The social media network that I'm most active on is LinkedIn. If you just go to LinkedIn and you type in Chris Dreyer, and that's D-R-E-Y-E-R, you can find me on there. I'm most active there. If you're a personal injury attorney listening, you can head over to rankings.io. And if you're interested in learning more about niching, you can head over to Amazon and get my book, Niching Up. Okay, rock and roll. And then we'll have links to that for everybody in the show notes. But um, thanks for the uh, the conversation, man. Super wide ranging. And it's always good to talk about somebody who's gone deep on this stuff for a super long time. So really appreciated the talk. And for everybody else, I'll see you guys next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.